This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For the past 106 years, Massachusetts residents have agreed that a fair state income tax is a flat income tax. Indeed, when voters were given the choice in five attempts to create a graduated tax, first in 1962, 68, 72, 76, and 1994, they agreed that any future tax change would fall to fellow Bay State taxpayers equally. This November, a new attempt to impose a graduated income tax will be before voters as ballot question one, the so-called fair share amendment, which would impose a 4% surtax on income over $1 million. The ballot supporters have offered voters assurance that the $2.1 billion in new revenue would go to improve the state's education and transportation systems. Opponents of the amendment warn that beyond testing our abiding sense of fairness, a tax on high earners may have many unintended consequences and therefore deserves serious scrutiny. Voters deserve to know if the Commonwealth needs new revenue at a time when its tax proceeds have already far exceeded budget estimates whether the legislature must use the money to fund education and transportation as promised, who will pay the new tax, and what will be the effect on all of us in the Massachusetts economy when an 80% marginal tax increase is imposed on our top earners. My guest today is Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby, whose column last week entitled Millionaire's Tax, Unwise and Unworthy, characterized question one as a terrible proposal. While Mr. Jacoby's readers may be unsurprised by his characteristically jaundiced conservative view of new taxes, they may be intrigued by his words of concern for the amendment's effect on our state's culture. Whereas the debate over the size and role of government had historically equated to a shared burden of cost for all, Mr. Jacoby sounds the alarm over the societal effects of a tax that targets high earners as an act of naked class warfare. Indeed, he quotes the amendment's sponsors that, quote, more than 99% of residents won't pay a penny towards fair share taxes as exhibit one for his class warfare case. Jeff will share with us his views on the merits of question one, as well as his concerns about the growing strength of the populist sentiment that scapegoats high earners and sets taxpayers against each other, serving to further shred the fabric of our communities. When I return, I'll be joined by Boston Globe columnist, Jeff Jacoby. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Boston Globe columnist and Hubwonk listener favorite, Jeff Jacoby. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Jeff. Joe, it's always good to talk to you. Always good to talk to our listeners. Wonderful. Well, we're going to talk today about uh, an issue that we've addressed uh, in, in different ways on Hubwonk. Uh, it's question one. Uh, our listeners will face it in the November uh, uh, election. Uh, it's sometimes called the Fair Share Amendment. Uh, it's a uh, an amendment to the Massachusetts Constitution that's been proposed that will um, impose a 4% surtax on all income above a million dollars. Uh, you wrote about this in a column this past week. Uh, laying out your objections. I think your your exact words, you, you called the tax a terrible idea. You offered a couple of reasons. So I want to develop the idea from there. Let's start with your reasons and then we'll go a little bit further if we have time and, and talk about uh, what this means essentially to what you assert is class warfare. So let's start at the beginning and say, um, 
this is a tax that its advocates uh, say will go to uh, education and transportation, both good things. It may raise as much as $2.1 billion is, is the original estimate. Uh, let's start with $2.1 billion. Does Massachusetts need $2.1 billion in new tax revenue? Well, considering that the legislature just passed a budget for the forthcoming fiscal year, uh, what was it, $53 billion, I think was the yeah. amount? Uh, More than a billion a week. Far and away the biggest budget in Massachusetts history. You know, I've lived in Massachusetts now for several decades, been following and writing about state politics for most of that time. And I remember when uh, a $20 billion budget was considered shocking. And now here we are at $53 billion. And on top of all this money uh, that's already designated to be spent, they still have billions of dollars left over. I mean, there's been so much reporting over the past couple of years about how contrary to everyone's expectation, the COVID pandemic didn't plunge the state into, didn't plunge state government into poverty and penury. It somehow seemed to have seems to have resulted in making the state uh, uh, a more lucrative concern than ever before. Money has been pouring in to the Treasury, uh, and there's now currently something like $3.6 billion of surplus unspent funds that Beacon, still, Beacon Hill still has to figure out what, what it's going to do with. Um, uh, so does the state need more money? You know, hell no. <laughs> the state's got more money than it knows what to do with already. Uh, so anyone who, who begins a, a, a making a case for raising a tax by saying Massachusetts is in dire straits and it needs to get more tax revenue, uh, right off the bat, they're just blowing smoke. Yes, indeed. Uh, it was Pioneer who just came out with a, a piece today talking about it. I don't know if you're up on this, a 1986 law that was passed that imposes limits on how much the state can spend. And in fact, what that law uh, requires is uh, if it exceeds that much money in revenue, uh, it has to give it back. So um, uh, Pioneer just released today something that, uh, about the fact that the state is likely to need to give back $3.2 billion back to taxpayers for uh, excess revenue. Yeah, but don't don't uh, don't count your, your tax <laughs> refund until you actually get it. Massachusetts legislators and legislative leaders are probably working around the clock now before uh, the July 31 deadline when the legislature is supposed to go out of session to come up with some way to prevent that law from going into effect. But yeah, this is one of the one of the legacies of the, the late great um, Barbara Anderson, uh, you know, who was the head of uh, CLT, Citizens for Limited Taxation. And I should say, you know, a great friend of mine and many other people for many years. By the way, Barbara Anderson was and CLT were among those who led the fight against the last attempt to impose graduated income tax rates in Massachusetts. That was back in the mid-1990s. Uh, voters defeated it then, as they have always defeated it when it's been on the ballot. And the question is whether they'll be prepared to do the right thing and defeat it now that they have a, ch a chance for the sixth time to vote indeed, on it. Indeed, no cause is ever lost because no cause is ever permanently won. So uh, the, the fight goes on. Um, now, the, the, the case that the advocates make for this new tax, regardless of whether uh, it's needed right now, is uh, we value education and transportation and we want to earmark this money for those uh, purposes. Does this uh, tax require the money to be spent in those areas added to Well, the advocates are making a, a couple of different pitches. There's that one, 
let's get money for education and transportation. Because as we all know, Massachusetts doesn't spend nearly enough on the MBTA and the public schools system and you know the, the public uh, uh, the public unions that run the MBTA in the public schools insert major sarcasm emoji here uh, okay. those are such heavily funded uh, operations they're also making an argument which i assume will you know will will we'll also talk about uh, that there's a fairness question that there's an equity question that people who make a million dollars aren't paying their quote unquote fair share and i would argue that that's actually a bigger piece of their pitch and a even even more dishonest uh, aspect of their argument. But on this specific question about money for education or money for uh, transportation, uh, the proposed amendment, and by the way, we're not talking about a statute. This isn't, this isn't a law that will go along with the regular books on the, you know, uh, statutes on the law book that can be repealed at any time. This would be an amendment to the state constitution. It would, it would change something that has been in the Massachusetts Constitution for well over a century, the provision that te- that income of a given class has to be taxed at a uniform rate. There cannot be higher rates for higher levels of income. Um, and it would and it says that the money that would be raised if this uh, tax increase is approved, uh, subject to appropriation by the legislature, uh, will be spent on education and transportation. But that's a loophole that completely consumes uh, you know, the entire animal. Uh, subject to appropriation is just another way of saying, if Beacon Hill wants to, it can spend the money that it, that it uh, reaps from this tax increase on education and transportation. But there is absolutely no requirement that it has to. And since dollars are fungible, there's no requirement that it wouldn't be able to simply say, well, the money that we've been spending on on uh, public transportation and public education, we will now say has actually come from the revenue from this tax increase uh, and just simply shift the label of where that revenue came from. But bottom line, it guarantees nothing. And in fact, when there was a case, there was litigation before the Supreme Judicial Court, was that a year ago, two years ago, when an earlier attempt was made to put this on the ballot? And... Uh, the chief justice asked the advocate for the tax increase um, whether they were guaranteeing that money raised by this would be added to what is currently spent on on education and transportation. And the lawyer acknowledged, no, there is no such guarantee. So whatever the ad- advertising may say, uh, whether or not the newspapers get around to you know fact checking it, um, the fact actually is it doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, the legislature could decide, um, you know, to spend more, to spend less, to spend exactly the same, to spend nothing at all. Nothing is chiseled in stone. And by the way, when they talk about education and transportation, um, I think, you know, we all know this, but I think it's worth saying out loud. They're not talking about private education. They're not talking about parochial education. They're not talking about money for homeschooling parents. They're talking about money for education which is dominated by the teachers union. And when they talk about transportation, they're not talking about money to make it easier for people who don't have cars to get them or ways to make automobile transportation, which is far and away the most uh, popular form of transportation in Massachusetts uh, to, to make it more com- comfortable or more convenient. Again, they're talking about public transit, you know, mass transit, the kinds of things that the unions are interested in controlling, not necessarily what Massachusetts residents would be interested in. Indeed. So it's a blank check. 
Um, even if it's spent on the you know the places where it's supposed to uh, alleged or promised to be spent, it's being spent on, as you say, public um, government-run schools and government-run uh, transportation, not transportation and not education in general. Right. Uh, that's an important point. I think our our listeners should should uh, latch onto. Uh, one of your other points that you made in your article, I think, was very um, very useful uh, and something we've covered also is. The unintended effect of a tax like this is to encourage those people who are footloose, who can move, uh, to in fact move. Uh, these are people who are high earners often, uh, and they are footloose. They can uh, choose to work, particularly in this age of Zoom, uh, from wherever they like. They can start their companies from wherever they like. Say more about why you think it's possible that uh, though we uh, we expect $2.1 billion uh, from this tax uh, has actually come in much lower owing to the fact that many people will just simply choose to leave the state. People have more freedom now to live and work where they want to than they've ever had before. Uh, I've written in the past about the ongoing exodus from Massachusetts. You know, when the states are ranked by which ones have the most number of people move into them and which ones have the most number of people move out of them, Massachusetts for years now has been in the top five or certainly in the top 10 of states that citizens choose to leave. There's been the steady exodus of people from Massachusetts. The, the states where they, where they go to more than any other are two, New Hampshire and Florida. I think something like, I forget what the exact amount is, but I think in, in 2019, the amount of income represented by the people who moved out was something like $2.6 billion, $2.6 billion of income that otherwise would have been taxable within Massachusetts that left with those people. And if I'm not mistaken, something like 70% of, of the people earning that money went to either New Hampshire or Florida. And I asked in my recent column, what do those two states have in common? It can't be the weather, you know, Florida and, and New Hampshire, you know, are, it can't be Disney World. Um, it can't be proximity to Massachusetts, because while New Hampshire is just up the road, Florida is pretty far away. What those two states have that sets them apart from, you know, from most others is that they don't tax income. There's no income tax in those two states and only three others. Um, I forget what the three others are. One of them is Alaska. I forget what the, what, what the others are, but the, that, that's the biggest thing. Um, uh, New Hampshire as well, if I yeah, Texas doesn't have a sales tax as well. Texas and Nevada, I think. That could be. Yeah. So when people, you know, most people, most of the time stay where they live. I think we can acknowledge that. But there is a certain, a certain share of the public, which if you make it work their while to move, will do so. People move all the time for all kinds of reasons. They move to go to college. They move to, you know, to take a job. Uh, they move to retire. A lot of people want to live somewhere else when they retire. And people will move for financial reasons. And if you tell people, guess what? You are now going to be subject to an 80% tax increase on you know this amount of your income, which you had never been subjected to before, but only if you stay in Massachusetts. If you move somewhere else, you'll be, you'll be free of that. Everybody won't move, but you know some significant number will. And I think if you look at other states with, with crazy high tax rates, Connecticut is a good example. There's been a flood of people and money that have moved out of those states. I remember writing one time when um, I think maybe it was LeBron James. I forget which you know which uh, NBA superstar uh, moved to uh, moved to Florida. 
I might be getting this slightly wrong, but I remember comparing the tax rates of the state where he had been living to the state that he was moving to. And, you know, that was persuasive to me. If you're going to be reaping those tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, it's well worth it to you to to be, uh, you know, to be going to a state where where they're not going to take as big a bite out of you. Um, We're not talking about people making that kind of money in Massachusetts. But even still, you know, for some of us, I mean, I wish that I were making a few million dollars a year. That would be lovely. And if I were, I would not want to be sharing even more of it with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Indeed. So many of my friends on the on the left um, uh, believe in things we call them Pagovian taxes, things you tax that you don't want people to do. We, they think we tax uh, cigarettes and alcohol. People drink and smoke less or uh, maybe even gas. They'll drive less if we tax it more. They'll even uh, accept that if we uh, have a five cent fee on grocery bags, people will reuse their bags. So five cents on a $50 bag of groceries is enough to incentivize someone to reuse a, a, a bag. But an 80% increase in income will not encourage them to move. It's, you know, to me, it's very difficult to understand how you can hold those two truths. As, uh, yeah. as Hillary Clinton once said, that requires a willful suspension of, of, of disbelief. I mean, to, to be able to see that taxing cigarettes or taxing alcohol will reduce purchases of alcohol and cigarettes, but not to be able to see that taxing higher incomes will either reduce the amount of people earning those incomes or the amount of people willing to sit around and pay those taxes. I, I, don't, I don't understand. People do have a great capacity to believe things that are contrary to fact when it's in their ideological or their financial interest uh, to believe it. Um, but but your, your friends on the left and, you know, my friends on the left feel the same way. I don't understand it. Um, what I love about your calm, though, uh, it, for me, the most salient point is that I think when people hear the term millionaire, they imagine, you know, Scrooge McDuck on the back of his uh, yacht, twirling his mustache and splashing through the, the, the gold doubloons. Uh, but I don't think they understand really who this uh, tax um, reaches. We've covered on Hubwonk in the past is roughly only uh, half of the people in this um, tax bracket are million dollar earners. Uh, the the majority are people who have a one-time what we call a liquidity event. They're selling a, pro- uh, a property. They're selling right. a business. Uh, these are everyday people who have saved a lifetime. Say more about the profile of the people who are apt to be swept up in a new tax like this. I'm sure that my wife and I are typical of lots of people who bought a house decades ago. Uh, in our case, we bought a very dilapidated house in the town of Brookline, and you know we you know we paid what we paid for it. It was you know it was it was a price in the in the low six figures. The house was truly in terrible condition. But here we are, twenty five years later, twenty seven years later. The real estate market has you know, has been crazy. Uh, granted, our real estate taxes, our property taxes, are pretty crazy as well. But if we were to sell our house tomorrow, on paper, we would have gained you know a, a tremendous amount of money. That's the one-time event that would suddenly show, wow, you know, I, I qualify as a millionaire. Granted, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, capital improvements and all the rest of it to deduct. But I think it's things like that, that that, for the most part, are the people who would get hit by this. Or somebody who's, you know, who's run a small business for, you know, for many years and it's gradually gotten more successful, but he handles the tax, the, the taxation, the, you know, the, the taxes for his or the income from his business through his personal income tax uh, filings. Um, it's not that he's living high on the hog as a millionaire, as you say, Scrooge McDuck, and uh, and the guy on the Monopoly board with you know the gold top cane and the 
you know, the twirly mustache. Uh, th- this is income on paper, but it's really it's a it's an accounting fiction. It's not, you know, this is not somebody who's you know, who's who's reaping tens of millions of dollars every year and you know slyly getting away without having to you know to pay taxes on it. By the way, although I didn't mention the column, I think it's also worth mentioning um, that the people who do earn large sums of money pay enormous amounts in federal income taxes. Granted, Massachusetts, you know. It, it's a separate question. What will be on the ballot has nothing to do with federal income tax, but it certainly isn't as though the highly progressive federal income tax system doesn't affect them. Um, it, it does. When you add those two things together, if you're coming to retirement age, you're ready to sell your business or you want to sell the home that you've lived in for 30 years and you've seen the value of go through the roof, um, you might, as one, you know, one correspondent wrote to me the other day, decide that you're going to up and move to New Hampshire so that when you do sell your house, you are now a New Hampshire resident, a New Hampshire taxpayer, and Massachusetts won't be able to get its, you know, its claws into that money. Indeed. I, you know, again, I've spent life, uh, a certain part of my life as a financial advisor. And I, I just say for our listeners, particularly those who may have pensions uh, that may enjoy money. Oh, good point. Good well point, into right. retirement, I'd say what we used to tell uh, clients is uh, for about every million dollars you have in your nest egg, you can withdraw in retirement about $35,000. So if you have a six-figure pension, that's equivalent to about a $3 million quote-unquote nest egg that you would have amassed over your time. So when you look at those other people, those millionaires, and you sit on your pension, you say, I've got a you know, six-figure pension, you have the equivalent of a $3 million nest egg, uh, but your pension is not hit with a 9% uh, uh, marginal tax rate. You get to enjoy that uh, if this is passed, wh- uh, whether it's passed or not. So your counterpart in the private sphere, who may have, as you say, scrimped and saved for decades, uh, I used to be in that community, I was an entrepreneur, uh, you defer a lot of income for that final liquidity event. If that liquidity event no longer uh, uh, is as lucrative as, as it needs to be, uh, you may never start the business uh, or you may, as you say, take your business elsewhere. So this is real consequences for real people, not, quote unquote, millionaires. Or you may leave the financial services uh, industry and move into podcasting. Podcasting, the really lucrative. No, that's that's how I can afford to have uh, have these great conversations with you, Jeff. Um, so, you know, through the arguments for the advocates that say, look, um, someone, um, you know, whether they're the corner business owner, the bodega owner uh, or not, if they're making a million dollars, they can afford to pay taxes more readily than someone who makes $50,000, who who has to use it for diapers and baby food and, and just getting by. Surely you won't say that someone who has a uh, million dollars in income in a year isn't better equipped to pay that tax than someone who doesn't. What would you say to uh, critics like that? Well, I made a couple of points in my column. One was, how did I put it? Those who make a million dollars or more are earning 22% of the income in Massachusetts, and they're paying 24% of the income tax collected in Massachusetts. I'm not even sure if that includes um, capital gains, which Massachusetts taxes at a much higher rate, so that there is a whole separate class of income typically earned by those who are more well-to-do, which is taxed at a much higher rate. Uh, but to me, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a more pressing point, which is that there's something fundamentally immoral about saying, you may be paying the share of, of income tax that the state requires. You may be paying a proportional share from your income that someone who makes much less pays at a much 
you know, at a much smaller degree from their income. You might even be paying somewhat more than the share as a group than you're actually earning. But nevertheless, you're making more than most people. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with our raising taxes on you. Um, and, and I just find something deeply offensive about the idea that because there's somebody else who's making more money, therefore, it's somehow appropriate to say, to, to tell other voters, as um, uh, one of the liberal groups advocating for this thing did um, uh, in, a, in a press release a few days ago, which, by the way, was what prompted me to write this thing. 99% uh, of Massachusetts taxpayers will never have to pay this tax. 99% of you will never be touched by it. We're only going after the 1% or the less than 1%. And this is, I mean, really, this is no different from the argument that we've heard over and over and over again in recent years from the likes of AOC and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, the attacks on the millionaires and billionaires. I mean, you can almost hear Bernie Sanders' you know, uh, inflection, you know, millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> The idea that because somebody has been successful, therefore, it's appropriate to whip up public sentiment against them, I always just find so, so distasteful and so inappropriate and, and at a fundamental level, immoral. And really, it, this, is, this, is, this is one of the most ancient temptations. Uh, you know, I mean, the Ten Commandments calls it coveting, uh, to covet someone else's property merely because you wish you had it. That that's not an act of that's not a that's not a phenomenon of social justice. That's not a phenomenon of equity. That's a phenomenon of greed and envy and the kind of thing that decent people ought to try to repress in themselves. And just as you wouldn't think it was appropriate to say it about your next door neighbor whom you know well, who happens to have a really nice car, to say that he ought to be willing to let you borrow his car at least one day a week, because honestly, you know, he, he doesn't need to use it seven days a week. Just as that would be ridiculous, I think it's equally inappropriate and ridiculous to be saying it about people who, uh, because they've been successful, let's just say that this is about people who make a lot of money, uh, that therefore they're, they're morally obligated um, to pay a lot more, and we're not morally obligated you know, to respect their, their success. The Massachusetts Constitution made a point of saying income should be taxed at a uniform rate precisely to obviate this kind of mindset, precisely to prevent class warfare, precisely in order not to encourage the majority to run roughshod over the minority. Uh, and I think it would be a great mistake for us to, to back away from that. I, I, I tend to agree. I think this is a, a political move known time immemorial that nobody wants to pay more taxes. So any politician who advocates higher taxes doesn't keep his job very long. So he quickly learns if I divide the electorate into groups and tax only one portion of the electorate each time, I can win by getting the favor of the majority who are getting the benefits and not paying the taxes. So that that's an unfortunate, that's, that's I think, a, a political reality. What I think what you're saying, I agree, you, you talked about at least a few deadly sins involved here with this particular tax. But for my money, I think it's not just, it's a natural human emotion to, to be envious. Uh, but it, it seems to me un-American. I think we we had historically celebrated people who take chances and succeed. And, and something's creeping into our society that, that's changing that. Um, well, my example of the person making relatively low income, having a, a higher marginal propensity to spend, they, they need to buy food and gas 
uh, a higher income person has a higher propensity to invest and save. And that's ultimately where all our prosperity comes from. Americans work hard, historically work hard. But the real reason we're, we're a prosperous country is not because Americans work harder than people in uh, other places in the world. It's that we invest better. We take more risks uh, and we get rewarded for those risks. So I think ultimately the golden goose is there. I think most Americans appreciate we don't want to demonize uh, our our uh, risk taking. I hope I hope you're right. You know, I mean, when you say most, I would have agreed with you for sure. You know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I I wonder now after the whole Occupy Wall Street movement, after the you know the phenomenal appeal that people like Bernie Sanders had during uh, you know recent presidential campaigns, when you see so many people, especially young voters, flocking to him. Do most Americans really feel like that? I, I don't know, but I hope so. I guess, I guess this ballot issue campaign is going to be, you know, one of the things that uh, that helps us decide that. You know, it, it's worth it, it's worth noting that, that while the proponents keep talking about fairness and equity and fair share, uh, one of the points that they make all over and over and over again is that the wealthy pay a smaller percentage of their uh, of their income in they say broadly state and local taxes. They, they pay less of their income, uh, less of their income goes to cover state and local taxes than is the case for middle-income uh, middle people or lower-income people, which is true. If you're a multimillionaire, less of your income is going to, to pay your taxes, all told, than is the case for somebody who's barely scraping by. But that isn't because of the income tax, at least in Massachusetts, it's not because of the income tax. As I said, people who make a million dollars or more earn 22% of the income and they pay 24% of the income taxes. The real inequity is in sales taxes and in property taxes. That's what's causing the great, you know, this great gulf to appear. And if if the proponents really meant what they say they meant, uh, what they say they mean, they would be advocating to reduce or to abolish sales taxes or maybe to you know to, to lower sales taxes for people who are who are low income but that's that's not what they're advocating for that's not what they're clamoring for they're clamoring specifically for something that would that enables them to demonize millionaires to demonize high income people which is why one of the conclusions about this that I've come to is that this is not at all about fair taxes it's about more taxes that's what the what the what the real impulse is uh, on the left, right from those who are pushing it, they they're not interested in in a fairer state. They're interested in a state in which uh, more tax revenue was collected, which they can then use for whatever purposes they they want to use it for. Indeed, it does seem that way. We, again, at the top of the show, we talked about the fact that the state doesn't need it at the money at all. It already is trying to figure out what to do with all the money it already has. So it isn't animated by some sense of need. It's in something else that's uh, that's driving this this move. And I, I tend to agree. We can never look into the hearts of, of those who advocate for this, but I, I have to believe it, you, you're you're close to the mark with with your your assessment. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our our time together. Um, where can our uh, you know I enjoyed your column, but I also enjoy your uh, periodic um, uh, emails, your missives that you send out. I guess twice a week. Um, how can our listeners uh, learn more about your uh, your? So I write a column for the Globe twice a week, and you can certainly find it at bostonglobe.com. If somebody has trouble uh, finding it, you know they can certainly send me a note. My email address jacoby at globe.com, and I'm happy to you know to provide my uh, my column to anybody who's having trouble getting it. I also write a weekly 
usually a weekly newsletter called Arguable, which I've been doing for about five years now. Um, the uh, the URL to sign up for it is is confusing, and I got to get that thing fixed, changed to something easy. But just if you just Google Jeff Jacoby Arguable, the first thing that pops up is the sign up for it. Or you can go to the Boston, you know, to, to bostonglobe.com and look for newsletters. But honestly, the easiest way, Google Jeff Jacoby Arguable. You'll get the, the the link to sign up for um for the newsletter. That you know, there's no charge. That's in addition to my columns. Um, for people who you know who can't get enough of my opinions, <laughs> it, it seems to have developed a following. There's a hundred thousand people who are reading it. So I, I you know, I, I welcome readers. And again. If anybody has trouble getting any of this stuff, just send me a note, jacoby at globe.com. That's wonderful. I, I enjoy reading your stuff. Uh, and let me also, again, we're making plugs for uh, different organizations. I'll say this on behalf of Pioneer. We're, we're grateful you cited some of our research in your column in the Globe. Uh, we did uh, uh, aggregate all the research we've been doing recently on this particular issue on the Fair Share Amendment. And we... Um, we released it in a book recently called Back to Taxachusetts. So if our listeners are looking for that, of course, they know where Pioneer is, is pioneerinstitute.org. Um, let me also say, you know, uh, our listeners, perhaps those on the left might take a step back and say, oh, sure, you guys are free marketers. You, um, you know, matter what the issue, you come down on the side of free markets. And I'll just say, I'm going to editorialize here and say, my advocation, uh, my advocacy for free markets is not that they make the rich richer. They make it makes the poor richer, right? right. And my my right. my uh, my frustration with uh, government intervention is, for the most part, it's not that it makes wealthy people poor, but in fact, it makes poor people poor. So we we advocate for free markets because we care about those who ha- are less fortunate. It invariably benefits those who are less fortunate. I hope our listeners will hear our conversation about this particular um, amendment and say, listen, ultimately. Uh, this sort of uh, class warfare will hurt me, the, the person who's working for a wage, because the person who wants to invest in a new idea is going to take it elsewhere. Uh, I don't know if ultimately, right. you know, it, what the takeaway for you is, if, is that what resonates on this whole issue if you were to wrap it up with a bow? I think you're right that there will be some people with good ideas who either won't invest in them in the first place or will take it away and you know, invest someplace else. But for me, I think it's just the, the sheer dishonesty, the envy that's built into uh, something calling something a millionaire's tax or a fair share tax. The idea that you go after people who are successful in order to punish them, in order to stick it to them, and that you paint that as somehow a good thing. That 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 may be is mostly, you know, is what bothers me the most about all of this. Yeah, the irony of calling, uh, designating certain people, certain money good and other money bad or, you know, deserving of a surcharge uh, and, and then labeling that, that a fair share is, is just... You know, if, if we have one minute to, to just extend <laughs> this thing for a second, <laughs> among those who are pushing this are you know, many of the public sector unions, Who's? I mean, this is a whole separate issue. We can do a whole, you know, whole separate show on it. I've written about it a bunch of times. Public employees, which you know, are, is the most heavily unionized sector of the economy today, uh, tend to get the most, uh, you know, high pay, lavish benefits. In many cases, far beyond anything that people who work in the private sector, uh, you know, can ever expect to see for themselves. You never hear them talk about reducing those 
or or penalizing those or taxing you know taxing those benefits going after public sector uh, union benefits and pensions because you know they are the uh, uh, you know they are the most lucrative and and, and the most lavishly funded uh, in the economy it's always somebody else's success that you know that people want to punish and i you know i i'm with you when when it comes to to celebrating market economics and freedom of choice and the ability of people to work hard and try to succeed and not punish them for doing so. A fair tax, by all means. The Massachusetts Constitution says everybody should be taxed at the same rate. That means that if you make, and the rate in Massachusetts is 5%, you make $100, your taxes is five. You make a million dollars or $100 million, your tax is $5 million. That's fair. But to say that because somebody is more successful, therefore they should be hit even harder you know, kick, you know, even more fiercely, have an even bigger bite taken out of them just to prove that we can do it to them. And because 99% of people will never have to pay it, there's something deeply immoral about that. And I hope Massachusetts voters won't, won't succumb to it. They never have in the past. Uh, you know, let's, let, let's, let, let's hope their, their good judgment and good sense is still intact. Indeed, uh, we vote. Our voters have uh, faced this uh, five times. Uh, it depends on how you count it, or six times in the past, and it's gone down to defeat in all cases. Uh, we'll see what happens in November. So, uh, thank you very much for taking your valuable time. Thanks for your great uh, um, editorial, your little op-ed pieces, um, opinion pieces. They're wonderful. I enjoy them every time. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Joe. Great to talk to you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help make it easier for others to find us, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.